we help our clients identify what the most important cause of, of unwanted downtime is. We don't solve it. People still solve that, but we help them make, we make sure that they stand in front of the right problem at the right time. You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Martin Cloak, CEO of Raven.ai. Established in 2013, the Ottawa-based company specializes in technology that helps manufacturers track down the exact causes of production losses and machine downtime. During our conversation, Martin explains how Raven.ai's technology works, reveals why many digital transformation efforts fail, and explores the explosive growth of his Industry 4.0 Clubhouse social media community. But before we jump in, a few words from this episode's sponsor, Misumi. With Misumi, engineers can discover hard-to-find, cost-effective, and high-quality local and Japanese electrical components that are used across a wide variety of automated industries, including automotive, food and beverage, warehouse, packaging, and more. Discover everything you need for your machinery to gear up for Industry 4.0 by visiting misumi.info electrical. Now let's jump into the interview. Hi, Martin. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just so anybody who's not familiar with your company, Raven.ai, could you describe the company? Yeah, absolutely. So we serve uh, global manufacturers from small shops to to large shops, and we help them with continuous improvement. Uh, We do that primarily by helping them understand exactly how they're spending every single second of the day in their process. And if you can understand how you're spending every single second of the day, you'll see that sometimes you're being productive and sometimes you're not. And and really the foundation of continuous improvement is being able to identify and solve problems. And the best way to do that is to know where the problems are. And that's what we help our manufacturers. So we serve companies like Danaher and Stanley Black and Decker and Amazon, all the way down to single single uh, uh, shop plants. So it's a, it's a pretty... Uh, it's a pretty neat time to be in manufacturing, as, I, as I'm sure you guys are aware. So when you say um, how they spend every single second of the day, is that mainly on the shop floor? Is that all the way up the organization? Is it a per machine kind of deal? How does that how does that work? Yeah, so our focus is on the shop floor. So uh, that this could either be for a discrete process, a manual process, or interconnected process. But basically, you know, they're they're producing a good, and there's points in the day where uh, you know, they're actively producing, they're preparing to produce, they're not even trying to produce, or there are problems. And uh, so our, our focus is re- really on the shop floor um, to be able to distinguish between when things are going well and parts are being produced and, and things are not going well, which is when somebody's waiting for material, somebody's spending too much time doing a setup, you know, something's broken. So there's, there's a, you know, pretty classic reasons around why things aren't going well. And we help them uh, know when those things are because. Uh, you know, fundamentally what, you know, people are successful when they're able to identify and solve problems quickly. Uh, we don't solve problems. People still do that, but we help them make sure that people are standing in front of the right problem at the right time. How does one account for those every second of the day? Is it, now I've seen on the website, there's a, there's like a tablet device. I believe it's called the Raven, uh, Raven Sense. Yeah. So to, you know, to understand what's happening every second of the day, you almost need to get uh, different data from different sources at different times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can absolutely get some of the data from the machine. So this is stuff where, um, 
you know, 30 years ago, we could have gone to a machine and pulled a signal and, and you know, collected data to see when the machine's active or not. So that gives us a component of what we need to understand. The next thing is you need some information from the ERP that to, to know, you know, if you're producing this part, how quickly should it be produced? But the biggest challenge is really to understand when the process is not running, why isn't it running? So if we look to the machine, you know, you can pick up a fault code or some other thing that would indicate what's happening at the machine. But often the most important information about why it's not running uh, is, you know, comes from people. You know, to understand what's what's happening on the shop floor, one of the critical pieces of data is is really to understand when the process is not running. Yeah. And then for the longest time, we've relied on uh, people to provide that context. And they do that with, you know, drop down menus and all that on, on you know, software. So the, that, and that's the critical data that describes exactly what's happening. So you can imagine, um, say a machine is broken and down for three hours. If you were to look at the machine and the fault code, the fault code would say, you know, code ABC for three hours. Sure. And that doesn't really tell you what happened. Because if you think about all the different ways that time is spent, you know, the first segment is machines broken, nobody knows. Then somebody realizes it, then they call for maintenance. Then they're waiting for maintenance to arrive. Then they fix the machine. Then they're waiting for the operator to come back and run the machine again. So if you actually break down time into all those different buckets, you know, the thing that they may need to do is, is to help to reduce waiting time, for example. But if you just look at the machine data, it says the machine's broken. So what happens with inaccurate data from the shop floor, what often happens is people over-index on the uh, technical side of things. They think it's mm -hmm. their machines that are broken all the time. When the reality is if you actually uncover what's what's really causing all this downtime, often there's a lot of things that you can do on the operational sides of things. So one of our one of our Danaher plants, they're losing 600 machine hours per month um, waiting for maintenance to arrive. And this is not that, you know, Danaher is a fantastic company. You know, they didn't know how to schedule maintenance. They just didn't know that this was the critical issue that was stopping them from producing. So so again, we help our clients identify what the most important cause of, of unwanted downtime is. We don't solve it. People still solve that, but we help them make, we make sure that they stand in front of the right problem at the right time. Defining the problem properly is the first, I got to imagine is the first step in solving it. Absolutely. Defining it or just, just even like defining it, understanding it. And then, you know, humans are pretty awesome at solving problems. We just aren't very good at you know, looking through massive amounts of data uh, and finding the right problem to work on. So what happens is that, you know, we know that instinctively we, and, we, and we're all about action. We're all about, you know, don't overanalyze, just do, right? So then what happens is that we under index on analysis and then we choose projects based on gut feel. So what happens is that our success as business is highly reliant on the instincts of leadership and of engineering. Now, you know, if, if their instincts are fantastic, and that's the case for, for many, you know, many uh, successful people, this can work out. So in some ways, if you can use data, you can make it where performing at an excellent level almost gets commoditized because you don't need to rely on this extremely high you know, uh, instinct. You know, you can, uh, you know, use data to help you put you in front of the right problem. So you can just think of an example of, uh, you know, a taxi driver or somebody who's new to the city. Right. So if you're new to a city and you're driving around, you don't know where to go, you know, and you're going to get stuck in traffic. So then there's a taxi driver that kind of knows the tricks. Now, imagine you give that new driver GPS with traffic and that driver with GPS with traffic is going to actually out navigate the taxi driver. And I experienced this in Toronto where I was driving around 
with my wife's grandmother and, and she didn't see that I had GPS in the front. And she said, Martin, like, how do you know the city so well? I said, I don't know the city so well. <laughs> I'm listening to this. I didn't, I didn't tell her at the time because I sort of took, I took credit for the fact that, you know, her, my, my wife's grandmother thought that I was uh, good at navigating, but, but that's the idea here. If, you know, we're not good at, we're not all not good at, you know, interpreting massive amounts of information and figuring out what is the right thing. Some are good at it. Uh, how do you commoditize that? And I, I, I often go back to that GPS for your car example, because that's a perfect example of, you know, helping everybody perform at a higher level. Um, and also it's done in a way where it's not about the report. It's not about the graph. It's about occasional high value guidance that's provided to people that helps them perform at higher levels. So if I just like that, con that conceptually can be applied to manufacturing, can be applied to engineering, sales, you know, it can be applied in, in many different fields, but it's this idea that it's the combination of things that we're good at supported by technology doing the things that we're not good at. It come about that you started the company. Like I was in high tech, then I worked in manufacturing. Then I moved to Ottawa to follow my wife to, when she was doing her PhD. Oh, right. And then I got right. connected to a bunch of tech entrepreneurs. So at the time, Shopify had like eight people. And uh, so there's a small group of us that started yeah. hanging out. Um, now many of them are billionaires in Ottawa, right? Um, and, and there's a point where um, then I was then as I was running a consulting company. I was a consulting for all of them. So I like I did I, I consulted for a firm that was doing DNA analysis and another company called Get Around that was doing that's another billion dollar company that's doing uh, wow. car sharing. And yeah. we're all part of this club and the club was growing and growing and growing. And then they kicked me out of the club because they said I was a consultant and consultants <laughs> oh aren't real entrepreneurs. So then I got, and, and they, they, I was still serving them. So they're all That's my friends. Okay. Uh, so then I said, then I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to solve a problem that I saw firsthand. I think I can do this entrepreneur thing. So I'm going to sure. solve the problem that I saw firsthand when I was working in manufacturing. So I basically combined the skills that I'd had in manufacturing as, as like a, a consultant. And I sort of dove into it. And I, I, I wanted to solve that problem that I saw firsthand when I was a, uh, production supervisor at blinds to go. Uh, and I jumped in, uh, and just before I jumped in, I asked my friends if I should jump in and they said, no, 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 it's a stupid idea. It's never going to work. You're a really good consultant. And I was like, ah, so I, so I ignored them. But so then after ignoring them, I came back and said, oh, I built this thing. I have Dan her as a client at the time I'd called it machine telemetry. And, and they said, oh, what do you think? And they said, it's a good idea. You should raise money, but your, your company name sucks. So, oh. so then we renamed, renamed it to Raven raised a bunch of money. Um, and, and, and now we have a, we have an amazing team with like, you know, my co-founder Braden PhD, uh, university of Toronto, uh, our chief strategy officer, Rob Lander was uh, a president and CEO of uh, Stackpole international, a multi-billion dollar tier one auto parts manufacturer. Um, you know, we've never grown this quickly. So since, since COVID started, we've tripled, you know, tripled in revenue. We've, we've doubled in size since January. Um, so it's, uh, you know, th things, things are booming, um, but that's really the, the, the starting point is, you know, I was hanging out with a bunch of entrepreneurs. I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I jumped sure. in and, and, uh, and actually all those entrepreneurs that I was hanging out with, all of them have invested in, in, uh, in, in the firm here. So it's kind of neat great. to have a, a, you know, backing from all of my buddies who are uh, doing pretty awesome things now. So yeah, it's kind of neat to see the, uh, the, you know, the success of that initial group because you know, we all used to hang out and <laughs> we, we we hung out in Shopify's office when there was again there was there's eight people there they were above right. a blockbuster on uh, in Ottawa and, and now how big are they I don't know there's there's thousands yeah. of people in Huge. Canada's second biggest company.
I'm a mechanical right. engineer. I, I worked as a designer for a long time. Okay. So uh, was that at uh, Blinds to Go? Well, so like I worked in telecom, uh, JDS Uniphase, and okay. I was a mechanical designer there. And then Blinds to Go, I did manufacturing engineering and production supervision and all that. But I sort of brought in some of my mechanical engineering tools. And then when I started my consulting firm, it was a mechanical engineering consulting firm. So, nice. so I'm trained as a mechanical designer engineer. So it's kind of like Perfect. throughout the, like all along the way, that's like, that's my degree is in mechanical engineering from McGill. And wow. if, if the one thing that I can do as an engineer is like, I'm a designer. Great. So that's, that's, that's sort of informed the whole product from, from the beginning. In, in some ways, and just that I'm, I'm comfortable with a blank sheet of paper and say, Hey, can you do something? <laughs> and I can, uh, you know, my stuff never looks good. And that's why it's nice to collaborate with, you know, designers and, and uh, industrial designers and all that stuff here. But right. And I get the sense that the tablet helps with that human part of it. Uh, I imagine, you know, there was a quote that I saw in one of your stories, if I might read from it here, creating engagement during onboarding is the most important, difficult and precarious part of any digital transformation initiative. I imagine it's getting that buy-in from those people on the plant floor to interact with the interface and, and input, okay, well, we had to shut the machine down and here's why, and here's how long this took. And then maintenance was doing their work from here to here. And then, you know, and so they're interacting with it, they're inputting it and, and just having their cooperation or their eagerness to, to want to interact with it instead of just saying, oh, that's another damn thing I got to do. I'm just going to forget it. Well, engagement from the shop floor is absolutely a challenge. And I, and I saw this you know, firsthand. So out of college, I worked in, in manufacturing. My first job was, you know, within a few, few months of starting, I had 20 operators on the shop floor at a, at a, a blinds manufacturing plant in Montreal. Um, and, you know, creating that engagement is extremely tough. Um, and the best run organizations will look for high levels of engagement from the shop floor before deciding to push forward with any kind of initiative. You know, they almost look, look to that engagement to know whether or not things are, are good or not. So in some ways, uh, if we choose to distract our operators with anything, there needs to be value for the organization and they also need to see value themselves. Mm-hmm. If they're putting in effort, if they're interacting with a screen, it can't exclusively be um, to feed a system full of data. They have to be seeing something in return. So now the thing that they want to see in return is they want to see people fix problems that they're identifying. Again, the, 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 way, the way that continuous improvement game is played is identify and solve the right problems quickly. And that has nothing to do with data, has nothing to do with, with uh, technology or numbers. Identify and solve problems quickly. And that, that is intuitive for operators. It's, it's ultimately should be intuitive for everybody. But often what happens is we get distracted by you know, technology and data is the new oil and all these things that point us away from the basics, which is just solve problems. Okay. So if operators see that they are doing something that's resulting in the organization solving problems, then they're going to be encouraged. So that's one thing. Uh, The other thing is that we can't distract them too much, right? So, you know, technology has advanced massively over the last several decades where we can consume you know, more and more data and present it in fancier ways, we have not advanced. Our ability to take in information has not changed. And, and I don't know if we've recognized this, you know, so operators have a finite capacity to take in information. And if you think back to GPS for your car, how often does it tell you to do something? 
rarely because you need to look out the window. And in the same way, operators need to be paying attention to their machine to make sure that they're producing quality parts. So when everything's going fine, technology needs to stay out of the way. On occasion, if there's a good reason to ask them a question, it better be a smart question. And if, the, if they answer it, you better do something in return. So really the purpose of the tablet is to give them a really uh, efficient tool so that on occasion, they can provide some additional context that makes sure that the whole organization focuses on the right kind of problems. And they need to see the, re they need to see the results. And fundamentally, nobody wants to work inefficiently. You know, people entering the workforce today in manufacturing, if they have to stand around for 20 minutes to wait for somebody to, to you know, move a pallet away from their packing machine, like as people entering the workforce assume that, you know, these, these organizations are more efficient than they actually are. And the tolerance for inefficiencies isn't there. People aren't looking to get that job for the next 35 years, and they're just going to stand at a machine waiting for people to come. You know, they want that responsiveness. And I, I think, uh, so for us, really, Everything starts with the operator. Uh, everything starts with sort of that, that high degree of respect for the fact that they are producing the good that's, that's being delivered to the customer. And then everything, everything stacks up behind them where you know, effectively, if you're not standing in front of a machine, you need to be doing something to support that person, either through your own actions or through the technology that you bring into your organization. I get the sense, like a, a lot of times when people talk about Industry 4.0 or IIoT, it's very, it's sort of like a, you know, a top floor, very technical, very maybe IT department kind of thing. And I get the sense that from your point of view, this is very much a grassroots up from, people centric and it's up from the shop floor and then it, it makes its way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has some connections to the top floor, but it's really just sort of a loop back to the people on the shop floor. It, it, it has to start at the top floor because without leadership, oh. nothing happens, right? So the right. ownership to put together an organization and a culture of continuous improvement is 100% the responsibility of leadership to put that culture in place and to nurture that culture to get the right people. I, I always say it's people first, then process, then tools. Mm -hmm. but, then to, what if it, but the tools are so shiny that we get all distracted and then we throw out the people in the process. So it's, it's up to leadership to get the right people in, to nurture them, to grow them, put the right processes in place. And then at some point, Industry 4.0 is a tool set that can be transformative to many organizations that, you know, some of the things I described earlier about, you know, uh, talking about GPS for your car, you know, the idea that you can actually get data from across your business and not only optimize in, in little corners or little silos is extremely exciting. But that, that's all for naught if you don't have the other two things in place. So it is grassroots in practice, but to establish, you know, the culture is absolutely the responsibility of leadership. You know, if you delegate this responsibility to the shop floor and leadership is not involved, it's going to fail. So both have to be, both have to be the top down, disregarding what operators do, simply viewing operators as another source of data. That doesn't work. You know, delegating it to the shop floor without support from senior leadership, that doesn't work. It, it, you know, you need to, you know, basically engage the entire team in the same way you're trying to combine data from across the organization. You need to have that same connection with, you know, with engagement across the organization. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the biggest challenge for Industry 4.0 isn't the technology. The pieces, many of the pieces are there. You know, the stuff that we do enables us to gather that exact information from the shop floor. You know, the AI and Raven AI is around how we um, complete the data and fill in the gaps and fix the errors and ask way less questions. Um, but a lot of the other tools that, that are, you know, are, have been around for a long time. What, what's where many organizations are struggling is to figure out 
which approach is the best one to uh, integrate this technology at their plants. And, and also, you know, in creating this transition where they're using data in a new way, they need to recognize that the, the way that they run their organizations that have previously been focused on, um, you know, these different silos, you know, simply interconnecting the data will not naturally interconnect these silos. So there's like organizational transformation is, is one of the biggest challenges for industry 4.0. And it's amazing how much the conversations about communication protocols and technology and cloud versus on-prem, like all that stuff's important, but, but that's not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is, is change management without question. You know, when I think of it, manufacturing's always had data. And it's, you know, and people think of, you know, there's data in those machines and on, you know, with the people and, and, and we want to try and get it to a place where it can be analyzed and, and, uh, you know, picked apart and, and repackaged into dashboards or widgets or whatever. And like, I I guess I'm making that same mistake. I've always thought of, it's that infrastructure in between the two figuring out is it MQTT? Even the way that you're describing it is, is, is like you talked about dashboards, you talked about interconnectivity, send the data someplace where people can use it. Well, sure. like, so I, I, I think we all need to simplify. So just, you know, if the engineers didn't show up one day, the plant would still run, right? So who do you need to, who do you need to run that plant? Well, you need right. the, yeah, you need the people at the operators. Sure. Um, one of the critical people on the shop floor is the supervisor because the supervisor is walking around solving problems. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the good ones are walking around all day. Uh, many of them are stuck at their computers because half their day is spent filling Excel spreadsheets or, or like making PowerPoint slides. But so I, I think, you know, once we simplify things and recognize that, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to increase how quickly we improve and, and, and then figure out, OK, so how do you improve? You know, go, go through the five whys. Well, you know, as you're trying to figure out how to improve, you improve by solving problems. What are our biggest problems? Uh, and, and start on the shop floor. That's where the biggest problems are. So if you mm -hmm. think of the, is the biggest problem is we don't have visibility. We can't see our KPIs in, in the boardroom during our weekly meeting. That, that's not the problem. And, and the fact that we are defining, you know, the reason for many people are digitally transforming for the sake of digital transformation, for the sake of letting their shareholders know that they've invested in modern tech. But what their shareholders actually want to see is they want to see people improve. There's a study that came out from uh, Deloitte, our M MAPI, that showed that labor productivity was increasing at 4% year over year from 1960 to 2010. And then from 2010 to 2020, it's 0.7%. Hmm. So, so basically, you know, when the iPhone came out, you know, when BlackBerry was, was, was rocking and all that, um, labor productivity stagnated. And what happened is that in this transition here where, you know, we went from looking at historical data on reports once in a while to being fed and bombarded with real-time data all the time. And just it, it, we, so, you know, the fact that the ultimate goal here was to make ourselves more efficient got lost. Mm. And then we suddenly thought that implementing technology was the goal. And it's not the goal. The goal hasn't changed. The goal is to produce you know, to, to, to continuously improve and continuous improvement is, is good for consumers because they can now get, you know, custom goods much faster, higher quality. Uh, it's good for profits, right? Because you squeeze out a bunch of inefficiencies. And it's also good for people on the shop floor because as I mentioned earlier, nobody wants to be running an inefficient process. So if you're good for those three things, that's really the potential of Industry 4.0. Um, but that will not be achieved if, if the goal is simply to install the latest tech. Or... Industry 4.0 
implementations in danger of just uh, just glutting themselves on information? Is it is it quality over quantity, or can you have both, or is it is that? Yeah, a, but it depends on the goal, right? So. Okay. You know, if you just forget about industry for now, and I'm not saying forget about it, but sure. like the goal is to continuously improve. So if you think about the things that are are inefficient in businesses, so like in manufacturing businesses, a lot of time is wasted um, because changeovers are too slow. They're wasted because there's a bunch of micro stops. Um, quality, you know, parts are are lost because of you know misconfiguration. Uh, you know, in it, their inefficiencies because of order sequencing. So like, you know, and even, you know, the kinds of things that, that, you know, and I work with manufacturers, but the kind of things we focus on are, is very much operations centric where we're looking at the shop floor. The potential of industry 4.0 is, is really the idea that you can have a connection from the shop floor all the way to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just think about the inefficiencies that are baked in um, because of the disconnect between sales and marketing and operations uh, or the inefficiencies that are baked in just by the, the design of the manufacturing process for the product. So that, you know, I think there's way more inefficiencies in manufacturers that are, that are, than are visible from the shop floor. And, and what's most exciting about industry 4.0 is this idea that you can have this single set of data that describes a business that is not only available, but that can also be used in a timely fashion to guide an entire organization to be more, more efficient. Um, it, it's interesting if you, uh, Google manufacturing here in, uh, I don't know if it's just in Ottawa, but the first company that pops up is Shopify. And so they, they have decided to, you know, grab the search term for manufacturing as part of a, a like an encyclopedia section, but that's super exciting because that's really, and, and people would say like, why would Shopify even care about manufacturing? Well, like businesses are relying on Shopify to run their, 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 their front office, right? So just manufacturing software runs the back office. It's only natural to have that connection. And, you know, what's exciting is, is the day when you know, manufacturing software is simply another app on the Shopify store that, that, you know, effectively connects that person standing in front of the machine to the person receiving the good. And once you look at that entire, you know, value stream from the person to the, to the person receiving the good and optimize that one value stream, you know, the potentials for, for, for creating, uh, if you know eliminating inefficiencies is just massive and, and, it, and it's super exciting. So does the does the does the Raven AI system then reach be beyond the shop floor? Does it integrate the other levels of of the business, like up to the ERP and, and MES, if that's a thing? Yeah. So so we connect into ERPs, we connect into the MES, we connect into other reporting and, and OEE systems. Sure. You know. So, but we are capturing what is happening on the shop floor. Right. And, and that's a piece of the puzzle, right? So it, it's not capturing what's happening on, on the sales side or on the marketing side. And, and really, you know, in, like there's, there's a balance here, you know, there's the incremental approach where you sort of do one step at a time. And then there's the disruptive approach where suddenly something comes out that is a, that is a complete solution. Um, I think manufacturers are, are very much aligned to the incremental approach and, yeah. and, and technology vendors are supporting that by producing these incremental pieces of technology. I, I think there's an opportunity for disruptive technology to come in here and effectively, you know, create that streamlined connection from the consumer to the producer of the good. Now, when that happens, like it, it's, it's unclear, but at some point there's such a huge potential because, you know, the way data systems have been set up in manufacturing hasn't been designed necessarily for optimizing the process, 
you know, ERPs were set up to store the data. They weren't set up to actually leverage the data. So, you know, there, there is an opportunity for disruption here in this space. Um, manufacturers tend to do things incrementally and, and just because that's, you know, it's conservative is, is safer. And as long as, as everybody's operating in the same way, um, you know, that is likely the safest approach. Um, but I can see there being a disruption in this space, especially for uh, smaller players. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely an interesting time here. And for us, we're focused on, you know, really that becoming that one source for data that describes exactly what's happening on the shop floor. Um, it's only natural for that data source that to be connected to other systems as they come online. Is this a solution that people would implement say just on a uh, on a temporary basis or is this like an is it do you is it more is it better to sort of have it just as a part of each machine or each line would have one well it's it's the same thing where you know you can use gps for your car temporarily and sure. think that you learn some of the routes uh, if you want to continually uh produce at a high level you need to get that real-time awareness uh you know based on data from somewhere Gotcha. So if you're not getting it from like, and, and, and at some point it's, it's pretty hard for us to compete with technology. Like our, our instincts are pretty good, but uh, you know uh, we have finite amount of time and energy and mental capacity. So right. I think, you know, where things are moving is more and more, we are relying on technology to augment our instincts. Gotcha. But there is the option, like you're not ripping out the guts of the way people operate and, and reshaping it completely and stuff. No, and at some point that doesn't work. When you rip mm -hmm. out the guts, you know, patients die. So yeah. <laughs> really, the, the, like for many organizations, their, their continuous improvement culture is good. So then what you want to do is you want to integrate with their process in a way that's least disruptive. One of the reasons why many manufacturers still are, are big proponents of manual methods, like, like whiteboards, yeah, it isn't because that's an effective way to communicate information. It's an effective way to create engagement because with a whiteboard, people understand what's happening at every step. They see the person putting on the tape and then they say, okay, you use a, a green marker for this and a red marker for this. Okay. I get it. So now if you look at the end state and the end state is a, is a manual dashboard, people often say, oh, why don't you just digitize that? Well, is, is if you follow that same process to create engagement, absolutely. But I think people miss the point when they look at the end result and they don't see the, the journey that it took to get there. And that journey is change management. And with humans, change management can't be done in an instant. We're slow. We don't like change. We're okay at it. And we're good at solving problems. And we're still, we can do way, way more than computers can. But you, you got to go at the speed of, of, that we can go at. So, so with the way we implement with our, with our technology is that we make sure that we adapt to this to the change management speed of their organizations and that's different for different organizations right. and, and there's absolutely things that we can do to support that and go faster you know we collaborate with consultancies that help that help organizations do that but again technology can be flipped on with a switch uh, people don't change with the flip of a switch just to change gears a little bit you mentioned in our during our preamble you mentioned the uh, creation of a the industry 4.0 clubhouse which is how would you describe Clubhouse? Is it? It's not social media, really, is it? Uh, or is it? It's, is it it's, it's, it's a, social media. I, I don't know. I, I'm new to social media, so maybe. You, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I I I have looked at it a little bit, you know, and stuff. Until recently, it was sort of an Apple only kind of a thing, uh, if if I understand it. But um, 
it's sort of a drop-in kind of a discussion. There are groups and you get invited to them. Yeah, so it, it is social media. I think it's, uh, when we think about social media, we're, we often think about Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, which is this, you know, asynchronous you know, ways of communicating with one another that is full of jargon, you know, like hashtag manufacturing, hashtag <laughs> awesome. Like, why don't we hang out, you know, and, or you send them, send somebody a message or you post something and like, well, how many likes did you get? Right. So I think people associate that with social media. Um, Clubhouse is a pretty unique form of social media because it's live audio uh, where you, it would just be strange for us to speak in jargon. And rather than doing things asynchronously where we need to wait to see if somebody liked our, our little business poem that we wrote, you can, you can, you can see it in real time. And I think for many people, there's a bit of a barrier to entry for LinkedIn and Facebook because they don't know how to write the thing that people will like. But all of us know how to jump on a phone and, and just talk about stuff. So I think that's what's... Uh, so just uh, Clubhouse is an audio chat, a drop-in audio chat app that structures like a, a panel discussion. So in a panel discussion, you have people that are on the panel and people that are in the audience. And, and nowadays, anybody can get there. So what happens is the panel starts talking. You know, you have two or three people and then people in the audience can raise their hand. And then somebody who's a moderator on the panel can invite them up. And basically, it's, you know, rooms are, are set by topic. Uh, when I first jumped on, I had, you know, recently been interested in LinkedIn. So I jumped into a room on LinkedIn. And uh, I raised my hand because I, you know, I'm not shy to jump on stage. I jumped on stage and I, I spoke for two minutes. And then I noticed afterwards that I had 30 new followers. And then the person who was running the session said, hey, Martin, do you want to come back and co-moderate? And I was like, hold on a second. So I just spent the last three months obsessing over LinkedIn. And I, I had, I think I dialed in my LinkedIn game to the point where I kind of knew how it worked. But, and I, I just saw the efficiency of Clubhouse. So two minutes 30 followers, I had a, somebody ask me to co-moderate. So, and, and at that point, like, I, I guess I was interested in LinkedIn to a point, but it wasn't really, you know, I, I'm, I am personally interested in manufacturing and that's not going to change. LinkedIn was a bit of a puzzle that I wanted to solve. But so then I decided, you know, rather than co-moderate that room was that I wanted to start hosting rooms that talked about manufacturing. So this was early on in, in January uh, of, of this year. And somebody had told me that, okay, so if you want to get a club, you need to host a room with the same name, you know, for three weeks in a row. Uh, and then you'll get a club that's named that room. So I, I decided to call it industry 4.0 club. Sure. And then I, then I opened a room or, or it was just a random room. So it was pretty sad early on for the first couple of times because I would open a room and I was by myself. And then when somebody walks into a room where only one other person's there, sometimes they go like, Whoa, what's going on here? I'm out of here. So yeah. But then slowly, people started started to uh, you know interact with me, and we started to talk about manufacturing. So first it was one, two, three, uh, and then at some point I was getting you know 20, 20 people in the in the room, twenty five people, and uh, it grew and grew. And then I decided to start hosting these fireside chats, mm -hmm. uh, and so I called it Industry Four Club, fireside chat with. So I, I reached out to a whole bunch of people. On, now, I, I'd already been playing with LinkedIn, so I was already connected to a bunch of execs. So I reached out to the head of um, you know, smart manufacturing at the World Economic Forum, a guy named Francisco Betty. And he said, sure, I'll jump on. Uh, I spoke to Jim Wetzel, who was a senior executive at, uh, I believe, at General Mills. 
uh, I met a guy named Joachim Hench, who was head of global operations for uh, Hugo Boss, so who ran all their global operations. And I started interviewing them, and the group grew and grew and grew. And then I started onboarding co-founders. So one of my one of my co-founders, Nadine Rahman, she is uh, the CEO of IFM Solutions, uh, you know, a large German technology provider. Right. Uh, and yeah, the, just just the momentum started building, and we got our club. So now, uh, after four months, I grew from a room with you know myself and then a few people to uh, we have close to six thousand members now. Wow. Um, we host rooms daily about uh, Industry 4.0. Uh, we've had rooms with up to forty five hundred unique listeners. Wow. Um, we've collaborated with Hanover Mess, you know, the world's largest manufacturing conference, and they right. sent us like during their conference, they sent all their guests to uh, visit our clubhouse. Uh, we've collaborated with IIoT World, and, and this is all in four months. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's pretty amazing that, you know, what this, what this is showing me that is that there's a huge appetite to talk about Industry 4.0. And one of the unique things that Clubhouse offers is that it creates these panel discussions with groupings of people that you would never see. It's not a bunch of stuffy executives talking to stuffy executives about stuffy things. So on stage, you can have um, a senior VP from Johnson and Johnson talking about COVID vaccine production, talking to somebody who one of my co-founders, Alan Zhu, you know, he is a, 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 um, a technician at a small pharmaceutical company. So to have him on stage asking questions of a senior executive is pretty unbelievable. Um, you, you, you would never have panels with that design. Yeah. And I think the way to advance our evolution to Industry 4.0 and, and, and unpack some of these issues that are slowing us down, to have these conversations with people that represent different aspects of the problem is, is, is important. And it's also really fun to, yeah. to combine people from the shop floor, people from operations, engineering, service providers, technology providers, executives, and having everybody in the same room talking about the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of a... Little little snapshot of that evolution. So our, our, our you know industry 4.0 club on Clubhouse or industry 4.0 club.com. It's uh, um, it's it's growing and growing. We constantly add new founders, new members, and it's uh, it's pretty neat. Um, you know how, how that's grown. That's awesome. How would how would somebody join up? Is it an invite only? Is it is it? Well, you can get an invite. So if you go to industry 4.0 club.com, there's a mm-hmm. little link for invites and you can get yourself an invite onto the platform. Gotcha. Are there particular themes that come up during these, uh, during these fireside chats or, or different sort of panel discussions? Yeah. So there's, there's certain common themes. So we have different, uh, uh, it's almost like a network with shows. So we have a show that is, um, you know, women in manufacturing. We have shows that centered on IOT change management, uh, how do you how do you get into uh, manufacturing recruiting? So we have in our in our uh, group of uh, co-founders, it kind of covers a diverse uh, set of uh, of people, um, and and we, we're constantly adding new themes or new shows to to basically you know expand our audience and and you know a- approach the problem from a different angle. So there's a schedule of these different shows that one yep. could tune into and and depending and, on and the neat thing here is that like you know it's it's like a show. But if you're in the audience, you can raise your hand and right. you can jump on stage. And that's part of the part of the thing here where, you know, if somebody's presenting something and you have something to add to the conversation, you can jump on stage and speak to them directly, which from a which is great to from a learning perspective and also just from a networking perspective, the fact that you can meet people from your industry and talk to them that easily. It's yeah. just it's pretty uh 
it's pretty unique in that way. Where do you see things going from here for Raven? In our space, there is a massive opportunity. Sure. You know, so somebody is going to provide that that tool to manufacturers that actually allows for them to have that that step increase in productivity um, that's been promised to them for so long. Yeah, because there, you know, it's 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 not quite greenfield, but you know, there's been so much. You know, technology has been misdeployed for so long that there's this opportunity right now um, to come in there with technology that actually um, both works from a data perspective, but also takes into consideration the challenges with change management. So for us, it's really about seizing that opportunity and going as quickly as possible to grab that. And it's, it's amazing to see like the number of Fortune 100 manufacturers we've acquired in the last six months is just, you know, incredible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would say the fact that, and this ties back to what we talked about on the, on the social media side of things, the fact that executives are now spending their time on social media, the fact that they're comfortable researching, uh, you know, using the internet to, to find technology and service providers and make buying decisions without having to meet somebody in person is mm-hmm. transformative because now, you know, it's the quality of your product and the quality of your message that determines your success, not the size of your marketing budget, because you don't need to fly over to Asia or to, to Europe. Like that's not to say that, 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 you know, we don't travel, but there's an interesting opportunity right now where there is in, in, in manufacturing, there's massive pressure on manufacturers to improve, to keep up with demand and with issues with, you know, labor. Um, there's interest in technology. Um, there's significant advancements in technology. So all these things together create this perfect storm where manufacturing today is an extremely hot space to be in. Um, A hot space means that there's lots of competition, um, but it also means that there's lots of opportunity. So for us, it's about speed. It's about efficiency. um, It's about, you know, our core is product, customer service. And I think for us, you know, spreading the, spreading the, our message with social media has, has been extremely effective for us. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a unique time when, at least in the manufacturing space where the big boys don't control everything like the Rockwells and the Siemens and the SAPs and this, there's, there, there's an opportunity for relative startups or smaller players to make a large impact on what has been largely to my mind, a sort of locked in ecosystem. But you know, what's interesting now is that like, so, I, I interviewed the chief information officer of Rockwell Automation. You know, I, I've been on, on, on stage with Siemens execs, um, yeah. you know, Ericsson execs. And I, I would say that, you know, what I see here is that the path forward is one that is collaborative. There's a lot of pieces here that are already in place. And I think in some ways that the little, the, the, you know, the, what's going to unlock all of this is a combination of support on the operational side plus collaboration between these tech providers. And this collaboration, I think it's not to do with, it has less to do with protocols and you know, the configurations of technology. It's more, to, it's more at a higher level here, but what's been amazing on the, with Industry 4.0 Club is to, is to talk to these other firms mm. who are trying to do the same thing with different technology and different tools. Sure. And I, so I would say collaboration is, uh, there's a huge potential here for, for collaboration. And it's not an us and them thing here because you know, it, the kind of solution that's going to win here, it's not going to be like a, an Apple type solution where it's everything is, is a closed system. Um, it's, right. you know, what's going to work here is somewhat of a collaborative system that is very conscious of the, the operational challenges of, of this, of, you know, digital transformation. 
Well, thank you. Thank you again for joining us, and I appreciate the time we spent. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to the Design Engineering Podcast or check out the podcast tab on our website, www.design-engineering.com for new episodes. Also, if there's a specific topic you'd like us to cover, please let me know. Send your request to my email address, mmcleod at design-engineering.com. If the subject has broad appeal and is appropriate to our audience, I'll do my best to make it happen. And finally, a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Misumi, your one-stop shop for Industry 4.0 electrical components. Configure your components at misumiusa.com. Hey.